Hi, and welcome to the Airline Weekly Lounge. I'm your host, editor Maduni Christian. I'm joined again this week on the episode by Edward Ned Russell, who covers airlines for Skift and Airline Weekly. On this week's episode, we talk about the Memorial Day travel holiday this last weekend in, in the United States, which marks the unofficial start of summer and how travel patterns changed from last year and two years ago. We also talk about the possibility of consol- consolidation in Brazil and how Europe is lagging in its recovery behind the United States and some other regions of the world. Thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have any feedback for me, you can reach me at mu at skiff.com. You can reach Ned at er at skiff.com. Check our site out, airlineweekly.com, for information on how to subscribe to, to the publication. A new issue drops every Monday, and we update the site throughout the week. Hope you enjoy the episode. Hi there, Edward Ned Russell. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Madhu? It's good to be back after a week-long hiatus and uh, t- to talk about all things airlines. So, yes. So, Ned, uh, let's talk about uh, this this last weekend, which is Memorial Day here in the U.S., the symbolic start of summer, the, the kickoff of the summer travel season. Uh, what did you hear or see about Memorial Day? You know, I heard I, I heard very little, which is actually yeah. good news for, for the traveling public. Uh, I didn't hear about any major, you know, queues or you know issues at airports uh, mostly things seem to go smoothly besides some weather which is par for the course uh, the TSA screened almost two million but not quite there one million nine hundred and fifty some odd thousand people uh, which is the most since the pandemic began right yes it's the highest number they've seen since the pandemic began uh, which is is a good step in the recovery you know two million is a symbolic threshold but a lot of people have their eye on that because Mm-hmm. Travel this time last year was about 2.5 million a day. So this time last year, yeah, Memorial Day week. Sorry, Memorial Day week in 2019 was exactly. about 2.5 two million. Ago. Yeah, two years right. ago. So tra- you know, passenger numbers hit their highest since the pandemic. Things seem to go relatively smoothly. You know, and that uh, is it's it's a good way to kick off what is expected to be a relatively busy summer travel season here in the U.S. Right. And, you know, you and I listened to a bunch of uh, U.S. CEOs talk last week at an industry conference, and uh, they're very they're very optimistic about the summer, aren't they? They really are. You know, the, the story out of summer is, is leisure demand is really going to be back strong. You know, a lot of airlines are planning to fly, you know, close to or at their 2019 domestic capacity levels. Now, this is right. not not the considering international. Uh, and, you know, it looks it looks good. Whether you know that turns to profits, I doubt because remember they still don't have many business travelers back, and you know they continue to, uh, but they also continue to be benefiting uh, from the uh, payroll support funds from the federal government. So we'll see how Q two and Q three play out in terms of the financials. But planes are going to be full from from everything I can tell. I, anecdotally, my husband is on a flight today, and he said uh, the plane was packed coming out of Washington. So. Huh. And where, where was he heading? Yeah, uh, he's a one of those few business travelers out there. Is going to a conference in Tucson. So Tucson, but that's also, I mean, that that's a, actually an interesting point because Tucson is a one of the new newer, I guess not new, but it's it's become a very hot leisure destination, as of all uh, a lot of cities in the desert and uh, Mountain West. Uh, so I was gonna. That was that's actually a good segue to the question I was gonna ask you next, and that is, you know, you you your specialty and your bread and butter is covering routes, um, and 
the networks have changed, right? This this is not these are not the U.S. networks from 2019. Um, so how can you just sort of run us down how the the airlines have pivoted to to capture this this burgeoning leisure demand? So there's a couple of different strategies that that are at play. You see the network carriers, American United and Delta, uh, focusing on their largest hubs and really offering the connectivity into these leisure destinations, be it Florida, be it Tucson. Uh, the Rocky Mountain West is very popular, and they're flying a lot of capacity there. You're seeing wide-body jets that normally go to Asia and Europe flying some, some of these routes. You know, Orlando is getting a couple 767s a day on Delta from Atlanta. Things like that. Whereas uh, traditionally business markets, uh, New York, Washington, where I am, Boston, San Francisco, where you are, are getting less of the frequency that they would normally get in sort of normal times. They're they're right. getting they're still being served. The airlines are still there, but they're not seeing the level of flying that they used to. Um, pivot to someone like Southwest, who's known for their high frequency point to point service. You know, they aren't offering, again, the frequencies that they once did across their network, but they're off, they've added 17 new cities. So they're offering mm-hmm. a much broader array of cities. You know, Southwest, just a few years ago, it was a big year when they would announce one or two new cities and we're up right. to 17 in a year. Huh. So it's a big deal. But and, and then you look at small carriers like Spirit, Allegiant. I mean, they're all adding adding new destinations at a fantastic rate. You know, they're going to be back more than 100% of 2019 capacity this summer. So you're seeing sort of a split in how networks grow, but it's the big hubs in the center of the country are booming again. Denver, Atlanta, Dallas. You know, uh, whereas is the hubs where airlines like to say strategic in New York and L.A. Uh, those are not back quite yet. Those those are going to take a bit longer, and they rely more on business travelers and that long haul international that still remains almost non-existent. And what about the fiftieth state? The fifty state Hawaii. Yes. <laughs> There's lots of flying going into Hawaii. In fact, it's really funny because Southwest testing your American history. There, <laughs> <Ed>. <laughs> I didn't think back there. Which state, Alaska or Hawaii, joined last? <laughs> Uh, Hawaii is seeing a real boom, actually. Southwest Airlines, you know, they're not, they, they haven't announced any new cities in Hawaii. Of course, there's not that many cities to add. But they are adding a lot of new flights from Los Angeles, Las Vegas, and Phoenix, uh, three large gateways that they did not serve when they initially announced uh, Hawaii service. They did not serve nonstop. And they're adding flights in a big way. They're going up against the big guys, American Delta United. They're going up against Alaska. So they're making a big play for the island of Hawaii. They're going to jump, and I, I ran the numbers, they're going to jump from, I believe, sixth place in a market of seven airlines flying from the mainland to Hawaii to third with their expansion, uh, barring no one else adds a significant level of capacity. But it's uh, it's changing play, yeah. Right, and Peter Ingram, the CEO of Hawaiian, was asked about that last week and said uh, he's... He's not really concerned. Hawaiian is not very concerned. I mean, of course, he has to say that. But one one interesting reason he gave for that is he said, you know, we know the local market. We've been here for almost 100 years and we know we know how to market our flights to sort of capture the to capitalize on local events. And, um, you know, he seemed pretty confident that there's not only not only do they know the market, but there's, you know, enormous brand recognition for Hawaii. I mean, the name of the state is on the air, aircraft. So um, 
So, you know, he says he was pretty confident that people, when they think of Hawaii or going to Hawaii, will consider Hawaiian first. They may not know about Southwest, which was an interesting thing to hear. No, definitely. Though I wonder if Southwest, part of their play is to, to capture some of that market that maybe doesn't have Hawaiian as an option. You know, the expanding right. connectivity from Midwest points, Phoenix and Vegas are big, uh, they're big O&D markets for Southwest. But they're also large connecting bases for Southwest, too. So it opens up a lot of opportunities that weren't available from Southwest gateways before. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's going to be interesting. Though I, I always hear, you know, you can fill a plane from LA to Hawaii in July and August pretty easily, no matter how many flights are going. So the question isn't probably going to be this summer how those flights do, it's how those flights do as we get into the shoulder season for right. leisure travel. Well, Hawaiian's also banking on uh, filling planes from Orlando. Right, and Austin, right, with with, uh, with holiday goers, which is you know it, that's a um, those are new markets for the airline. Um, it it has a whole bunch of A three thirties that aren't flying international routes because the Hawaiian's international network to mainly points in Asia um, is basically shut down. So they've got these A three thirties and they're sending them to Disney World and to to Austin, which uh, you know Ingram was asked about. Austin and one of his points was that there are a lot of Californians who live in Austin now and Californians know Hawaiian airlines and they, uh, they, they will, uh, they have sort of memories of frequent vacations to Hawaii, which is not, maybe not something that occurs to Texans. And, uh, he seemed to suggest. And, uh, so now they'll be jumping on, uh, on Hawaiian flights to Austin, um, from Austin. Right. Um, and all this, we should add, comes as the state uh, looks like they're preparing to reopening, reopen to vaccinated travelers yes. without a PCR test in early July. Um, not, uh, I don't think the date's firm, but the governor said that they're working towards that. So, yes. you know, that could provide a boost for all of these flights to Hawaii. You know, whereas everyone now needs a negative PCR test before they can go. Right. But the other, the sort of complicating factor with that is that is not that has not changed with what Hawaiian calls its neighbor island network. That is the inter-island network within the state of Hawaii, which is an important way for for citizens of that state to get around. It is, Um, and we've seen some changes in the inter-island network. Uh, Hawaiian, just before the weekend, uh, unveiled that they are are shutting down their Ohana subsidiary, mm -hmm. which is Hawaiian's regional operation. Uh, It serves a number of the smaller islands, Molokai, Lanai, in, in the Hawaiians, and they're, they're shutting that down. They said they didn't see a sustainable path to restarting flights and, and being profitable in the future. So they're selling the ATRs and exiting. Yeah, well, especially, I mean, you, you know, as of the end of May, um, a, a resident of, of, say, Maui would need would need to present a negative PCR test to go to um, Kauai or to, to any of the neighboring islands. And when you think of that, that uh, say the, the low fare, the relatively low fares of inter-island tra- travel, you add the hundred dollars of it, two hundred dollars each for two PCR tests. Suddenly, you're talking about a very expensive trip to go shopping in Honolulu, right? Um, and if, and I, so, if I know the market correctly, like I mean, a lot of local Hawaiians do. I mean, these are day trips for them. They yeah. they, they go from Maui to Honolulu for several because it's a, it's a twenty minute flight. Like it's a. Right. It's a it's a meeting kind of thing, a lunch, like you know. It's, right, yeah. or they go to the doctor from you know they go from Lihue to Honolulu for a specialist visit, and uh, that becomes a very expensive trip if you have to do two PCR tests and the time you know the time it takes to process those tests, and your your day trip to go see your orthopedist is not feasible anymore. So, 
Interesting. So yeah, I mean, it just seemed to Ohana's or Hawaiian's announcement about Ohana just seemed to dovetail with the reality of living in the 50th state right now. Right, right. It's, it's, it sounds like it's certainly a challenge, especially getting around. That's for sure. And we're back. So Ned, let's let's shift gears from Hawaii and, and domestic U.S. demand to um, to this big announcement in um, Brazil. Yes. So last week in Brazil, it was uh, there was some news that came out. Uh, Azul and Latam were ending their code share. Rather, Latam was ending the code share with Azul. And in the in the days that immediately followed that, it, it came out that Azul confirmed that they have been looking at merger possibilities in, in Brazil. And, and really, that's either acquiring Latam Brazil or Gol. There's only three airlines in the market. Right. And, uh, and then Reuters confirmed a day later that Azul had approached Latam uh, on a possible combination, which Latam has denied, but you know, it's uh, you know, back and forth. So it's interesting developments going on in Brazil, but, uh, especially with Latam still moving through bankruptcy. There's mm-hmm. far, far, uh, far from any definitive future for Latam Brazil. So it's uh, it's shaking up, but it's it's funny because just uh, weeks before Azul's leadership had said, you know, they were very happy with the code share. They thought Latam was very happy with the code share, and then Latam was like, "It's underperforming, and we don't want to do this." So <laughs> it, it, most of the analysts agree with Azul's view that uh, Latam probably was unhappy with any potential merger uh, nods or suggestions and, and exited though. It makes you wonder what the market in Brazil is going to look at in in a year or so as as the restructuring occurs. Yeah, I mean, it could could conceivably um, the Brazilian market, which is huge and growing, you know, it's the it's the continent's most populous nation, and it's got a um, it's developing economically very rapidly and has a growing middle class. I mean, could could we conceivably see two major airlines in Brazil down from three? Absolutely. You know, like uh, Savi Saif that Raymond James noted in a report, you know, with LATAM in bankruptcy right now, you know, anything's possible. They haven't right. filed the reorganization plan. And then even when they do file it, the creditors in the court will have a chance to weigh in on it. So if Azul files a competing plan that carves out LATAM Brazil, that could be acquired. And then even on the antitrust front, we know Brazil can sometimes be a bit of a, a, a bear on that, you know, it doesn't seem like it would be that much of an issue because Azul is such a small share of capacity at some of the key airports. Uh, huh. Cagonia, Santos Dumont, Guarlos, you know, those are not large Azul airports where LATAM is. Azul's main hub is Campinas and then the secondary hub in Belo Horizonte. So conceivably, it seems like it could happen with a few concessions, uh, on paper at least. Um, I, I mean, Azul Gol seems less likely simply because Gol is an all 737 carrier and Lazul right. is an E-Jet and A320 carrier and, and ATR. So it's interesting to see this shake up. And then you have the entrance of a new startup in Brazil, ITA, that plans to begin flights in June. Uh, so we're, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny, these market machinations that are going on. But like Ayat has been saying, the, the crisis is not done. And when they say there's no. going to be a lot of failures in the crisis, they mean consolidation. Failures includes consolidation. And I, we actually haven't seen that much yet. So it wouldn't surprise me if there's something's going to come out of this, um, at least on the, yeah, if there's, we'll, we'll see. Yeah. Well, the region, I mean, has been hit very hard by COVID. Brazil is mercifully coming out of a devastating second or third wave of the virus um, that really 
really caused a lot of suffering in um, the earlier part of this year. And Goal, as we both have reported on, Goal is more cautiously optimistic about the second half of the year than it was the first half of the year when it was reducing capacity by 43% month on month. So, um, but I mean, if you look just beyond Brazil, the, the, um, the region is, the continent is not faring very well with, um, with the pandemic. I mean, even early success stories like Uruguay and Peru, which did a good job of containing the virus are, um, are facing massive outbreaks. I mean, I just saw a headline today that Peru has the uh, the highest toll per capita of any country in the world right now. And this is a country that had done very well early on. So, I mean, we we here in the US are, you know, you listen to airline CEOs and they're they're popping the champagne, but it's important to remember that this disease is not done yet. It's not done with us yet. And um and how that affects the airline industry down you know, in South America, it just really is anyone's guess. Whether it, re- it results in more consolidation, like you mentioned with the Zul Latam or Zul Gol, or uh, will we see more liquidations? I mean, people just aren't, borders are slamming shut, borders are reopening. I mean, there's just, it's impossible for airlines to plan. So huh, it's, uh, you know, that uh, that proverb, may you live in interesting times. Perhaps I could use some boring. I think we all could use some boring now. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely. It is very interesting times. And, and there's a lot of question. There's far more question marks out there than there are, are answers for definitive paths. You know, uh, like I mentioned, LATAM is still working its way through Chapter 11 as our Aeromexico and Avianca. And we just saw, mm-hmm. for example, the U.S. downgrade Mexico. Which just by the way, I mean, Azul or sorry, Aeromexico, LATAM and Avianca are the con- are Latin America's three largest airlines. They're all in Chapter 11 bankruptcy. That's that's significant. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and speaking to the recovery, like I was saying, uh, the U.S. downgraded Mexico's safety rating. Now Aeromexico cannot add any flights to the U.S., mm-hmm. nor can its Mexican competitors. But U.S. airlines can add flights to Mexico. So it does put them at a disadvantage. And then their, their JV and equity partner, Delta, had to pull their flight numbers from all Aeromexico flights with the downgrade. So that's... That is a significant uh, and sort of backward step for Mexico as they, they work to emerge from this. And, and Mexico has largely been open through the crisis. So it's, right. it makes you wonder if they can ride that wave of, of travel returning to Mexico as much as it is. Yeah, I mean, uh, we, we heard it from United. We heard it from uh, American. I mean, there's almost a bottomless demand for, <laughs> for uh, U.S. travelers to go to beach resorts in Mexico. Uh, and they're all they're all hurrying to add new destinations or more frequencies. I mean, United has what nineteen flights a day to Cancun. Something Americans flying some of those wide body jets to Cancun. So. Right. So there's this insatiable demand to go to Mexico, and just just as that that's sort of ramping up, uh, Mexican carriers can't add any flights to the U.S. It's uh, it's terrible timing. All right. All right. You know, we'll see how quickly they're able to get that, that rating changed. The last time it happened about a decade ago, it took uh, less than six months. But that's still a six-month, uh, you know, um, you know, sort of lead, lead boot on, on their Mexican carriers and their recovery and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, and six months in this pandemic, I mean, everything can change. Right. And we've seen that over, you know, in the 14 or 15 months since this pandemic has really affected the world, it's changed. You can't even look three months ahead. Absolutely. Right. I mean, look at, like I mentioned, Uruguay. Look at Uruguay. Ten months ago was a Latin American success story. Now is seeing its infections spike. All right. All right. So you, 
you just can't tell. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny we're talking about all of this because you, you talk uh, airlines, you know, we're covering at different paces, we pivoting to, to Europe where, you know, airlines there are seeing some recovery this summer, some leisure travel is coming back, but it's, it's nowhere near what some of the U.S. airline CEOs are saying. You know, uh, interesting uh, news just out of um, Swiss uh, this week and this is Tuesdays. They're only going to fly 50 to 55 percent of their pre-pandemic capacity this summer. Where and they basically said we are not seeing a structure, uh, you know, structural, re- a structural recovery, a broad structural recovery, and so it really is hit or miss. It's it's pop, like you said, popping champagne in the U.S. Uh, some airlines in Australia are back, China's back, but then you have markets like the EU, South America, you know, really aren't at this point, and it's uh, it's going to take a while. It's it's very different pandemic stories from country to country. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, you 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 wrote that story today about Swiss and they had a very interesting quote from uh, from their leadership, right? I mean, once again, like you hear of all this leisure demand, people have been putting off their vacations throughout the pandemic and we know Europeans love their vacations. And uh, But yet, what did Swiss say? You know, they said they are not seeing a structural recovery yet. And you know, we should, of course, caveat this, that Swiss is primarily a business airline, right? You know, flying in a recovery that's mostly leisure and VFR. And With no domestic market, basically. No, I, I looked at the numbers. They had less than 1% of their capacity in 2019. And when I say less than, it was several decimal points less than wow. <laughs> uh, domestic flying in 2019. So they have no domestic market. And then if you think about the EU, within the block, each country is still able to pick uh, whether it's opening or not. So, you know, Swiss is somewhat, hand, I should say, Switzerland's not actually in the EU. So that's right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, even though they generally participate in, within the, the single uh, trade block. So Swiss is hamstrung. You know, they aren't able to to really boof, beef up some of their strongest routes to like London and Paris and stuff. And, you know, they're adding some new flights to Portugal and Greece uh, and Croatia, three countries that are opening up to travelers. But you know, they're really, I mean, really feeling the pressure of, of the crisis. And it, it really is looking like they're going to be coming out looking like a very different airline than when yeah. they went in. And, you know, we, we even heard this for a couple of weeks ago from Ryanair CEO Michael O'Leary that, uh, you know, while U.S. airlines were salivating about uh, the summer demand, he he's, he saw September, September is when demand would start to return in, in Europe for, for leisure travel. So um, it could be a second lost summer in Europe. I, I don't think it could be, but that's my opinion. I think it, it is going to be a second lost summer for, for many European airlines. Not everyone, but many. Um, just, right. just the way it's shaping up at this point. You know, fun meanwhile, fact. Oh. oh, so meanwhile, I mean, we I was looking at some data from Skift Research, and that that said, uh, you know, that uh, searches for lodging and rental cars are is spiking all over the world. But flight searches are lagging. So suggesting that, you know, especially in Europe, a, a, a region of the world that has excellent options, um, surface transit options like rail, um, <clears throat> you just you wonder, like, how many people are just deciding not to fly and still taking their holidays, but taking the train to the beach. No, you really do have to wonder that, though. How long is the train trip from Switzerland to uh, to the to the Mediterranean coast? I, I <laughs> you know, they built that That's new tunnel question. a few years ago. I'm curious, though. That is a really good question. I don't know. Well, if anyone <laughs> knows how long it takes it takes <laughs> to take the train from, say, Zurich to Nice, please let us know. <laughs>
Can you take the TGV from Zurich? No, uh, the Swiss network is not high speed. Though it is very efficient, okay. it is not a high speed rail network. That's uh, so. Okay. Well, I just showed my train ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is which all is, good. Which is why I edit a publication called Airline Weekly on trains. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should launch Train Weekly next, Madhu. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note <laughs> thank Kidding. you for joining us for another episode uh once again if you have any feedback for either ned or me you can reach ned at er skiff.com you can reach me madhu and Krishnan, at mu at skiff.com check our site out airlineweekly.com a new issue of the publication drops every monday um for information on how to subscribe go to airlineweekly.com and we update the site throughout the week with news thank you for joining us and we will see you again next week bye madhu Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Airline Weekly Lounge podcast. Should you have comments or questions, drop editor Madhu Unikrishnan a note at mu at skiff.com. Of course, check out airlineweekly.com for a new issue every Monday and updates on the latest airline news throughout the week.